Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Genocide Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host today, Jeff Bachman, a senior lecturer at the American University School of National Service. Thank you all for listening. Today, I'll be talking to Jarvis Piner about the third edition of We Charge Genocide, published in 2017, and about its continuing relevance today. Jarvis, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jeff. Glad to be here. Yes, it's, it's an honor to have the opportunity to speak with you uh, about the historic We Charge genocide and the Black Lives Matter movement and the continuing relevance of We Charge genocide today. Um, before we do get into a conversation about the book, uh, can you tell our, list, our listeners a little bit about yourself? Oh, sure. Well, uh, I uh, live in New York. I'm a leader of the Communist Party USA. And as you may or may not know, your listeners, uh, it was really uh, William L. Patterson, a leading member of the party of the Civil Rights Congress back in the day, uh, who launched the uh, U.S. Uh, ratification movement of the you know, Genocide Charter and wrote this great uh, We Charge Genocide uh, indictment and uh, became a national movement and so on. It was a very, very important effort, particularly in light of the McCarthy period and particularly in light of what happened in the Second World War. Great. Thank you. I'm sorry. So, I, I, uh, yeah, let me just add, <laughs> I am currently the chairman of the, the Communist Party in New York State, sort of uh, semi-retired, uh, but uh, I operate daily as part of that collective leadership, and uh, uh, it's, a, it's a very uplifting time we're in, and very difficult, challenging, but it's a very rewarding effort uh, to fight this Trump problem and so on. Thank you. Um, and you mentioned William Patterson. Uh, to, to provide some background for our discussion, can you talk a little bit about William Patterson, uh, the Civil Rights Congress? Uh, you mentioned other members of the Civil Rights Congress who also contribute to the charge of genocide against the United States. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, well, the uh, Genocide uh, Charter Convention was passed by the UN in '48. Uh, this is after the tragic consequences of the Second World War. And uh, particularly as um, 
as the uh, Supreme Court Justice Robert H. Jackson said, he said that we generally we don't intervene in other people's countries and, and when they do bad things. But he said the exception is what Germans did to Germans. And he uh, he uh, was a prosecutor at Nuremberg. So he was making this point and supporting the idea that the charter, the 48, it passed. And uh, William L. Patterson was the head of the Civil Rights Congress. He was also head of the International Workers' Defense in the early 30s. And he uh, was a, a principal political leader of the movement to, to uh, free Sacco and Vanzetti, two Italian anarchists who had been arrested for some activity they had done, and, but they were about to be hung. And uh, so the whole movement united around them. There's some question whether they even did it or not, but anyway. Uh, so Patterson, African-American, uh, his parents, his father was from the Virgin Islands. His father was from uh, uh, St. Vincent, but his mother was from Virginia, and he grew up in San Francisco. And uh, he um, went to Hastings Law School. I think that's associated with the U- University of California system. And eventually found his way to New York and eventually found his way uh, into, you know, that, that whole period of renaissance in the 1920s in Harlem. He was a big part of that. He worked with Paul Robeson. Very, they were very good friends. Uh, he worked with Alphys Hutton. And he worked with uh, Du Bois. and uh, he was a brilliant lawyer uh, and had uh, an extraordinary ability to uh, public speak. So he became uh, a very active and he eventually uh, joined the Communist Party. Uh, and these were all what they call fellow travelers. <laughs> Some were more than travelers. They were really with the, uh, completely with the party. And, and Pat uh, led this thing. He, he was an international workers of defense, and then he became, when it came, he evolved into the Civil Rights Congress. He was head of it. They had a group that that defended the Scottsboro and so on. So after the McCarthy period, they led the fight uh, to apply the genocide conventions to the situations of African Americans and other people of color inside the United States. Thank you. Do you know where the idea came from to engage uh, with international institutions such as the General Assembly? Well, I think it was largely influenced, <coughs> excuse me, by the horrible experience of the Second World War. You know, the Holocaust. <coughs> Jews were slaughtered. Uh, communists were arrested and slaughtered. Socialists, homosexuals, people of color. And the Nazis <coughs> had a master race concept, which is not dead in this planet. I'll tell you, it's still there, very much in the White House, if you ask me. And <coughs> they, uh, and they did such terrible, terrible things. And the party at that time was under attack. <clears throat> the Smith Act, which outlawed the Communist Party, had been passed. This is after the Great Coalition, which included the Soviet Union and the U.S. and all the Western powers and the world against Nazis and uh, the uh, Japanese, you know, to call the Rome, Tokyo, uh, Rome, Tokyo, Berlin, Axis. And that great uh, feeling of the world was that we had to move to a much more positive system. So the party was yet under attack and being challenged, and their leaders were facing jails and so on. And the feeling 
for my reading the literature, and of course, Pat always he was very uh, he's a very great orator. He always talked about this. We had to do something to shift the paradigm, to shift the discussion where it belonged, and that is the continued existence of genocidal policies towards people of color in the United States. And uh, so I think they had, and the Rosenbergs were executed. It's a case of a frame-up. It, it appeared in every way to be that. And uh, they were parents of two uh, children, and they put them in an electric chair and murdered them because they said they had stolen the secret of the atomic bomb because the Soviets couldn't develop it by themselves, right? So that was the whole thing. But uh, when that happened, uh, it, was, it, was, it was quite a declaration of war against the party and the left and socialism and civil rights groups and labor and all the things that were associated with moving to a more uh, just society. So the consequences of all that, uh, I think they had to let's move on this thing. This is the black question. Uh, Henry Winston, who was the uh, chairman of the Communist Party for many years, uh, he was a black man from Mississippi, and he became came through the unemployed movement in the 30s and ended up head of the Young Communists and then head of the uh, party national, along with Gus Hall. He used to say that the Achilles heel of U.S. imperialism is racism, is the struggle against racism. That's what they cannot defend. And if you remember, they persecuted a lot of people like Paul Robeson Ford for raising that. So all of those things piled on. It was a brilliant move, if you ask me, to raise this question. But it was the right thing to do. Great. Thank you, Jarvis. Um, you know, we've seen, I think, uh, a return to engagement uh, with international human rights systems uh, by Americans, uh, including um, Americans of color, on issues from police brutality uh, to the right to water with Flint, Michigan. Um, you know, in William Patterson's forward to the second edition, you know, he did write of his disappointment that the General Assembly did not respond uh, to his petition or to the petition. Um, do you see uh, the potential for effective redress through international institutions, or do you think um, African Americans and other um, marginalized groups need to do it within the United States? Oh no, no, I think it was I think it was correct to do that. Because even though the General Assembly didn't adopt it, I don't know if that had to do with the Security Council or not, where you know where everybody could veto any <coughs> excuse me. But uh it was nevertheless in a political sense, a political sense, a great struggle to educate and mobilize people to fight racism, fight anti Semitism, fight uh, anti-labor and other things that held back people. But in this question of genocide, helped to, to dramatize it. And um, I think uh, we, would, we would be, uh, you know, deficient in our efforts if we didn't recognize the international situation, particularly, particularly since most of the world was against Jim Crow and other things. And if we could get an honest reflection of the majority view, through political work and activity and talking about it and spreading the word, if we could get an honest reflection of that majority, this could be stopped. And that's what the fight was. And as you know, eventually, uh, of all people, Ronald Reagan, <laughs> the U.S. for 40 years refused to sign this thing, but Ronald Reagan eventually signed it. I, we could talk about that later, but that was very interesting. For sure. That was um, the charter. He signed it. You know, yeah. 
of course, with uh, you know decades of uh, petitioning by um, Proxmire, I think I'm, I'm, I'm for some reason I'm blanking on uh, the member of Congress who uh, gave I think thousands of Proxmire. Uh, you got yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that uh, he um, made a thousand, he made three thousand speeches <laughs> every right. year on this issue, and he applied it to Vietnam, which terrified them that he would do that. But uh, it was great. Yes, uh, as with the the Russell Tribunal, um, maybe yeah. we can come back to that as well. Um, you know, in the prologue to the third edition, you write that quote: "They showed the race that racist terror, beatings, lynching, and discrimination were systemic. It was an institutionalized system of oppressed." Oppression aimed at doing great harm to African-American people. It was enforced by the conscious actions or inactions of government by commission or omission to deny democratic rights, economic justice, and racial equality to the African-American people. Can you talk for a bit about the charges that were levied in recharge genocide and the extensive documentation of evidence? Well, there's a mountain of evidence because they what they did was they marshaled a very uh, capable group of researchers. They studied newspapers. They uh, talked to people in the South. They traveled. They got people to testify on the lynchings, on the beatings, on the murders, on the uh, terror against Black women, women, and children over the years. You know, from, uh, I think it was from 19, uh, from 1883 to uh, 1968, Almost 5,000 black people or 5,000 people were lynched in, in this country. And that's lynching itself. And um, uh, 27% of them were white, but the great bulk were black. And I don't know what the Latino figure, but I know they, they did that. They uh, lynched uh, 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 Latinos, particularly in the Southwest. Uh, so this is terrible that all these people died over mostly trumped up charges and over, uh, how should I say, the corruption of racism. One of the things that Robert H. Jackson, uh, the Supreme Court guy, said that uh, when a country uh, mistreats its people because of their ethnicity or whatever, I'm paraphrasing, he said that the obvious and logical conclusion of that is genocide. And you can see it in our country today. We can talk about that later. but. President gets up and make an ignorant speech, and then these people come out with guns and police beat people and shoot them out. It's, it's, it's unarmed and oh, it's just terrible. Men, women, children. So the logic of of uh, this kind of mistreatment and racism, extreme misogynism, uh, anti-Semitism, all of that is the logic of it is genocide. So he said, what you do, what they do in peacetime, this is Jackson, he says, the oppression they carry out in peacetime, in wartime, it becomes genocide. So I think that was a good reading of history. Thank you. Um, so, and I should, I should note that uh, for, the, for the audience members who do get a chance to, to look at the book, um, you know, just to echo what Jarvis said, the evidence is extensive, uh, extremely well documented, and uh, certainly makes makes a strong case. Um, related to that, maybe before I get to, to to my next question, do you think was, was when we charge genocide was presented, um, was it more a political text than a legal text? I, I mean, do you, 
have any understanding of what the expectations were for what to um, what we charge genocide might bring? Uh, it was a, both political and legal. I think Patterson was a brilliant lawyer. Uh, the first time I met him, he came to Philadelphia. I was a young member of the party in 61. He gave a speech, not on genocide, but on a general fight against racism, which included that idea. This was in 1962, maybe 61, 62. And he just laid it out in very legal terms, but it was extremely political what he was talking about. And I think that's reflected in the uh, indictment. And uh, it starts off with the shock by the Nazis, barbaric murder of millions of Jews and millions of Poles, Russians, Czechs, and other nationalities uh, on the sole basis of race under Hitler. That's the kind of thing. And just as Negroes are murdered on the basis of race in the United States under Mississippi, Virginia, Georgia law, the General Assembly of the United States has adopt, adopted the Genocide Committee. That's where it starts off, um, and that was written in 1948 as an indictment. It has the, so we say, the premature of, of, of Bill Patterson all over it. and. Um, I think it it, it, it it politically was a tremendous thing. Now, you, you look at the names of people who signed on it. I actually know some of them, although I came in the party a long time after this. I actually know some. There's a lady there named Mary Cow. She <clears throat> lived in Norfolk, Virginia. I know her quite well. She, was, she eventually moved to New York, her and her husband. And Mary was, was a, a very active lady, a beautiful woman. She's Jewish and from New York, but lives in Virginia. They had a, they had a business, but they had they just worked. And she signed this thing. Now for a woman, a white woman, a Jewish white woman in Norfolk, Virginia, to sign on her thing with, this, with their state address, like so many others in Mississippi, black people signed, preachers signed it, and so on. Uh, people in the labor movement signed it. And, and as well as some prominent members of the party signed it. And of course, Robeson signed it, and Du Bois signed it, and so on. This was a, a tremendous uh, expression of United Front anti-racism uh, and the mobilization of that majority against the uh, really the backward fascist kind of thinking in our country. So it was politically uh, driven, but it had a legal framework. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Thank you. Um, you know, I, thinking about um, some, something I think about um, somewhat often is um, the sort of mythology of, of, of the United States and uh, the lack of ac accountability historically for ill treatment uh, and genocide of indigenous peoples, of, of African Americans. Um, and, you know, we can look at, um, you know, the current crises and, um, you know, I, I was going to say, we charge genocide has not been the only genocide accusation against the United States. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, the Russell Tribunal found the United States guilty of genocide in Vietnam, as, as you mentioned previously. There is increasing attention to genocide against indigenous peoples in North America. Uh, you know, I wrote a book about the U.S. and its foreign policy and genocide in, in Indonesia, in Bangladesh, Guatemala, mm-hmm. Iraq, and now in Yemen. Uh, how do you think the U.S. Is, is able to maintain what I would describe as its mythological existence? And, um, you know, related question to that is, can things ever change systemically uh, if some people in this country, in particular those also, you know, or including those elected to public office, refuse to acknowledge and accept the United States' history of violence? Well, one, if you're elected, you can also be defeated, which I hope will happen in November. But at the same time, uh, <clears throat> I'm optimistic. You know, uh, James Baldwin once said that, uh, African-Americans cannot afford to be pessimistic. We can't win if we're pessimistic. He said we have to respect and understand that we can win this battle. Martin Luther King understood it. You know, the arc of humanity bends towards and all that. And uh, this is hope. And if you really understand history, the march of history, even though it takes time and often too much time, uh, it is nevertheless a process of change. I mean, national health care was considered uh, a blasphemy against uh, the capitalist system. But now most people want national health care for everybody. They know it works. People are learning. They're growing. And that's what the process of struggle is all about. And some of us who, uh, how we say, uh, linger in the, uh, in the vineyards of politics get discouraged. But, you know, one day you're discouraged, three days later somebody does something or somebody pushes a bill or somebody stands up and it, and it just uplifts. So to me, I think uh, we have actually made a great deal of, college, uh, of, of progress, but not anywhere near. We, we haven't, we haven't uh, shall we say, reached the pinnacle of our strength and our uh, possibilities, but we are moving in that kind of direction. And Trump actually accelerated it. We didn't have Black Lives Matter, but they were there, but they weren't as strong. And now the Black Lives Matter slogan is embraced by people of all races and colors, all ages, all across the country. 30 million people have marched under the, the, against police brutality and so on, and murder, uh, modern lynching. And um, that is because Somebody stood out there with a, with a sign and with a courage to march against, even though they knew the police, and they still know the police will hurt them, maybe even worse, kill them. And we, we now have uh, a president who's turned these militias, along with the, uh, how shall we say, unidentified police forces onto these demonstrations, but they keep coming out. Listen to Baldwin. We can't be pessimistic. And certainly we communists can't be pessimistic, but we'd be in deep trouble. So so to me, I think um, that the fight is not only legitimate and right and correct and 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 beautiful and all of that, but it has shown that the American people can be mobilized in their majority. It's significant. Trump stays in the upper thirties, and that's about it. But some places he has more, but in the overall sense. But when this is over, Trump will be lucky to be in the upper tens. I tell you, because this country is moving and it's, it wants change. 
Great. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I, I appreciate your optimism. I, uh, I describe myself, I'm sorry, I describe myself uh, to my students as uh, a cynical optimist. You know, I'm cynical, uh, unfortunately, at a you know relatively young age of 44. Um, but yet I maintain my optimism, which, you know, which is what allows me to do um, you know, what I do in terms of teaching and writing. Um, you know, maybe uh, could you tell us maybe just a little bit more about um, sort of the Black Lives Matter and historical context uh, in the movement for um, rights of African-Americans? Yeah, well, uh, it was initially uh, formed as a black movement. And I think that's the, the leaders of it at some point considered that the resistance to racism is a black problem, and, and, or at least it should be black-led, and that whites, they straggle in and help us okay. But then the first demonstrations, like uh, Trayvon Martin and people like that, and what happened with um, the young man in, in Missouri, and all the other murders, you suddenly saw a lot of white people coming out. And it began to be a, a uh, slogan, a concept, the breastfeeding, especially after the right says, oh, it's not black lives. I want blue lives or it's not black lives. Yeah, we only care about black people. Right. That's what you talk about. That is not what they were talking. About. They were talking about racial oppression against people and its impact on democracy as a whole. And I would say that the leadership of the Black Lives Matter, uh, a, a chunk of it, I don't know enough about the whole thing, but I know some scholars, friends of mine who work with them, have grown in their conceptual understanding of where racism comes from. And they are talking about racial capitalism now. They didn't talk about that before. Racial capitalism, what they talk about now. And they are welcoming people, white people, all kinds of people, and into these struggles. They are bonding a, a level of unity that we didn't have before. This is powerful stuff that if it comes to the polls, it'll be great. But it, in the ongoing struggle in history, this will be seen as a watershed, as a, a, a new level uh, of struggle in, in our country. So um, I feel like uh, we need to give great praise to that, to that movement. Let me tell you a story now. Stop. We uh, well, there was a big march from Harlem, and the uh, uh, the Young Communist League came out with a, a substantial number of people. Not not all of them, you know, but maybe ten percent, five percent. I don't know. And they were marching from the state office building on 125th Street in Harlem down to City Hall, a long march. And when they formed a group of uh, well-heeled looking uh, black folks, joined in, and it turns out. They were uh, corporate types. And when they saw the Communist Party banner, they went up to the organizer. They said, we are very glad to march with you, but why do you have these communists marching with them? And the young woman in charge couldn't be no more than maybe 25 or 30. She said, we don't like capitalism, too. We don't like capitalism, too. <laughs> and you know what they did? They rolled up their banner and they left. But the great bulk of the people marched on. This is the new moment. Because, uh, the chairman and the co-chair of the party, uh, Joe Sims, African-American guy out of uh, Youngstown, Ohio, he said that this is a socialist moment. And a lot of people identifying with the socialist idea and transformation of society because capitalism has shown itself being capable of delivering equality and justice for all. Anyway. 
Thank you. And don't hesitate to share stories for real. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I guess you've already talked about optimism, um, you know, with the, the pandemic, um, you know, the police brutality um, and any other number of issues on climate change and, and, and immigration. Um, do you, can you tell our audience maybe a little bit more uh, where you find your, your reason for hope, maybe something uh, you know, that inspires you or how, how you can, how people can become inspired to, to keep pushing on? Well, yeah, uh, for me, uh, born in 1941, I'll be 80 next year. Born in 1941 in Philadelphia, West Philadelphia ghetto called Mill Creek. Uh, my mother owned a beauty shop. When I was a little kid, I was a kind of tall, like, you know, now I'm 6'3 and all that, but I was tall for my for growing up. So my mother sent me to a program at, at a daycare center, and then I, I had gained a lot of, so say, verbal skills sitting in the beauty shop, talking to the ladies and listening to them, and they thought I was older. So my mother put me into public school when I was only three and a half, maybe, and I couldn't do the work. It was too, when I got to the first grade, I was about four, and I couldn't do the work. So the teacher called my mother in, and she said, What's my mother used to be a teacher, school teacher in the Deep South in a single one, one room schoolhouse. And he, she said, What's with your son? And back in those days, if you didn't do the work, they would take you in the cloakroom and whack you. This is serious stuff. <laughs> so my mother said, Why? Why? He said, I can understand why he can't get it. He seems like he's very smart, but he can't get it. I couldn't, couldn't draw those little figures. I couldn't do all that. So my mother, so she said, How old is the boy? She said, He's four. Four? Get this boy out of here. <laughs> so, so my mother, I sat in that beauty shop for a year, and my mother taught me. She gave me, got all the books from school, and she taught me. I went back, it was a breeze, with breeze. But then uh, I was sitting there, and I remember when they, when they attacked Paul Rosen, and I heard them say, I don't know, I just remember all these things. They had a big impact on me. And the women in the shop, they were all working class women, domestic workers, garment workers, uh, you know, maids and stuff like that, cooks. And uh, they didn't make much money in the neighborhood. It was generally poor. But they worked hard. And so my mother and I were talking about Paul Robeson. And one of the ladies said that a person like Paul Robeson who speaks out and fights, they're always going to call them communists like that. So they didn't. They weren't uh, identifying what communism meant. They were saying it's used to defeat people that are fighting for good stuff. And all the ladies gave an amen to that about Paul Rosen. Same thing with the Rosenbergs. See, we had already lost our best teachers in school. My brother McCoy, who was a uh, grew up to be a great jazz musician, Coy China. He'd play with Coltrane and all that. But uh, he just passed, actually, uh, early this year. But McCoy had a teacher named Mr. Ivins. <laughs> and he used to come on every day talking about Mr. Ivins. My mother said, and she, he said, Mr. Ivins said, this was us. My mother said, who is this Mr. Ivins? Said, so I'm going to go up to school and see who he is. And he was a young Jewish teacher who was a member of the party. Because when the committees came down uh, to purge uh, communists from the public school system, he was one of the first ones to be purged. Now, they all got their money back, and they all got uh, whatever went on with their life. But they said, again, here's a teacher who was very good for my son, and then they fired him for his 
political views. Again, he said that. And uh, so what I'm trying to say is the common people understood there was wrongs were being done and that this anti-communist thing was, uh, how should I say, used to scare people like racism was used to scare people. And uh, they really felt that uh, we were uh, had to reject this stuff. We were going nowhere without it. And, you know, every racist that spoke up in the Congress was an anti-Semite, an anti-communist. You know, that's what, what, what we were dealing with. So now you know what to fight against. We see it. So I learned a lot just sitting and listening to these garment workers, domestic workers talk about and the stories they told about working in rich people's houses. I cannot share with you, but <laughs> I heard them too. And my, this little kid sitting there who's five years old, my mouth was wide open. And, <laughs> and these ladies were telling these stories, you know, but it was educational. So my brother uh, also, he, he became uh, very politicized. Uh, particularly as a Muslim, he was a Muslim, and uh, he uh, educated me a lot so about uh, what was going on with black people. So it had a strong nationalist edge to it, but later he became very, very much for unity and all that, not just later, in a, in a, in a good short time. And uh, he taught me so much. And then what happened in uh, Birmingham, in, uh, in uh, uh, Little Rock, Big impact on us and all my friends, you know, we were doing all the teenage things that you do, partying and enjoying yourself and hopefully not get too much work out of school that we had to school. So uh, my friend, my friend Robert said to me one day, we were, we were talking about Little Rock. He said, why do they hate us so much? And that idea stuck in my head. That was a good question. Why? So I spent my life trying to figure out why and trying to, trying to correct it in a sense. And once I learned the link of racism to slavery, to the, the, to the um, uh, development of the capitalist system, what Marx talked about, uh, primitive accumulation of capital, the richest people in the world were the slaveholders back in the day. They were the richest. I mean, it's trillions of dollars was made on the unpaid labor of African slaves who were treated like animals, commoditized human beings who couldn't have families, who couldn't learn to read and write, who didn't have the right to vote or anything. This, is, this was, this was pseudo-fascism in, in, in our deep south especially. So and my parents came from there. So anyway, it was a, it was a very, very a good education process between my brother, my mom, ladies, and, and what we lived in the neighborhood, what would happen in the neighborhood, police and all that. So anyway... That's how uh, I grew. And then I got into the civil rights movement, first chance I got. And I, that's when I met the Communist Party. They were some of the more active people in the civil rights movement. So we did things like uh, the barbershops at the University of Pennsylvania would not uh, cut Africans' hair. Uh, they said they didn't know. But African complained they wanted a haircut, you know, and so forth. And they got them to, we got them to change that uh, rule that in the area of University of Pennsylvania, they had to cut everybody's hair. Then uh, the American Bandstand was right near uh, my house in West Philadelphia, about about six, eight blocks away. And it was not integrated, if originally. And a bunch of us got set up a West Philadelphia Action Committee, and we sent three uh, black couples onto the show. And to get into the show, they had to stand in line outside, and the producer said, "Okay, you can go. Oh, you 
we don't want you here anymore. You go away. They would say to different people who maybe they didn't uh, want to be on the show. So when the first black couple, we put them separate in the line so they wouldn't get thin. The first black couple that got up there, the producer says, wait a minute, stay here. And so they're waiting for the, some security guy to come out and throw them off the line. Out comes Dick Clark, and he says, welcome. Wow. <laughs> and that's because they wanted it to happen. And he was the kind of, he brought a lot of black uh, artists on his show that other people wouldn't. And even though all the dancers were white, you know, the, the top, you know, R&B singers and all that were black. And he brought them on the show. And he didn't want to lead this effort, but he clearly wanted to be, not be against it before, you know, and he did. And if you notice, when he moved the show to L.A., everybody, you see, first it was black people dancing and white people dancing with each other. You know, blacks uh, with blacks, whites with whites, Latinos with Latinos. But when he got to L.A., everybody was dancing with everybody. And that was an interesting point. That was an interesting point in history to let you know, hey, look, they can have fun. They, nobody's fighting each other. Nobody's whatever. They're having a good time. Great dancing. Oh, this is, you know, anyway. So don't get me started, but uh, these are the kind of <laughs> <laughs> these are the kind of things that uh, that made me feel very powerfully in that optimism about change and things like that because I was active. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for the. Uh, I did. I did not know that about American Bandstand, um, and it seems you know there's these little things that may seem like little gestures that mm -hmm. um, are visible expressions of anti-racism, right? So mm -hmm. um, yeah. Well, thank you and. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sorry to hear about your brother, um, uh, but I have already uh, taken a quick look and I see that he's uh, worked with the John Coltrane Quartet and I'll, mm -hmm. I'll definitely be looking into that some more as a jazz fan. So, um, well, you know, five, I've taken five a Grammys, five Grammys, 70, 77 albums and a fan base of uh, really millions around the world. He was quite he was one of the top 10 jazz pianists in the, in the world. He was. You'll uh, see. Buy one of his yeah. records. <laughs> all right. I will. No, no, no doubt. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you for all of your time today. I really appreciate you taking the time. And um, yeah, I'll, I'll be in touch. Okay. Thank you very much, Jeff, for having me. And everybody should pick up a copy of We Charge Genocide if they can. It's a very, very enlightening and uplifting, even though tragic, uh, consequences. Uh, keep your struggle. Definitely, definitely they should. It's... Um, it's something that is not talked about through a, a genocide perspective enough. So, um, yeah, yeah, thank you again. And, and uh, yeah, have a good day. You too, Jeff. Take care. Thanks, sir. You too.